Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Let's go to page 163 in Footsteps of the Messiah, 163, and we're going to go to the advance in heaven prior to the tribulation. We'll look at the throne of God in chapter 4 and all that 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 has to say about things to come. On page 163, if you'll read with me as I read Revelation 4.1, it says this, After these things, and immediately want to note that, that it's given a chronological order, that after these things, what is he, what are these things he's referring to? The seven churches of Revelation. So it's important that, God, that John is putting timing mechanisms on the scriptures. After these. So after the seven churches, what did we say the seven churches encapsulate? The entire church age. So therein lies, you can see that he's, he's now saying after the church age is over, Something else is starting to happen. Okay? Um, and John will say this, I saw and behold a door opened in heaven and the first voice that I heard, a voice as of a trumpet speaking with me, one saying, come up hither or here and I will show you the things which must come to pass hereafter. There's your other timing mechanism. So what's going to happen after the church age is getting ready to show John. And what you'll see, and this is important to understand when you're in the book of Revelation, after this point, what he just said here, there is no mention of the church until Revelation 19 at the second coming. The church is removed. It's gone. It's not talked about. And the, the, the typical word that we saw in Revelation uh, 1, 2, and 3 was, this is what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the typical phrase for all seven churches. The Spirit says this. The Spirit says that. You will no longer see that phrase anymore. It will be removed. The Spirit is no longer talking to the churches. And again, so something has happened. Obviously, I think you know what has happened. It's the rapture. It's indicating to you that the church has been removed from the earth. And now God is going to restart its plan for his plan for Israel. And the term earth dweller will now become a predominant theme in the book of Revelation, earth dweller. In order to avoid the tribulation, you can't be on planet earth. So that's what, where, why our removal has happened. The interesting thing about that, this phraseology here, is I'm not taking an allegorical approach and in reading into this, but there is a typology here. Fruchtenbaum says there's no typology. I disagree with him, and so does Dr. Walvard from Dallas. And some other pre-tribulational guys disagree with Fruit and Baum, and here's where I would disagree with him as well. I believe, typologically, I can see a pattern of removal of the church here with John. I'm not reading into an allegory, but this is what Dr. Walvard said about this, that what you see happening to John is extremely similar he says this, there does seem to be a typological representation of the order of events, the church age first, the rapture, and then the church in heaven. Okay? So a lot of people will teach us, well, this John is being raptured. He's not. So don't, 
That's an incorrect interpretation. What we're seeing is a typological pattern of the church is being discussed, it's gone, and then it's in heaven. That's the typology I'm trying to refer to. What some people will do is try to make John in a rapture mode. Well, John is not taken to heaven. He'll, he'll explain that he sees this in a vision. His body is on Patmos, but he sees this in a vision. So you don't want to make too much of John being raptured into heaven. But nonetheless, the typology that's here is the order of events. That's what's typological here. Let's move on to the next page, page 164. Straightway, I was in the Spirit. Therein lies where he is at. He is saying, I'm seeing a vision. He's not in, he's not been taken up to heaven like the Apostle Paul had been taken up to. He's in the Spirit, so he's seen a vision. And behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and sitting upon the throne, and he who sat on it was like, uh, was, uh, to look upon like a jasper stone and a sardius. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, like an emerald to look upon. Okay, so let's break that apart a little bit. So the vision he sees then is the events transpiring in heaven after the church age. So he sees someone on the throne of God. Do you already know who's on that throne? It's Jesus. Okay. He tells the churches in the church age that I, you will sit on my throne as I have sat down on my Father's throne. So who is occupying the Father's throne right now? It is Messiah. He is seeing a picture of Messiah here. Okay. Notice what Messiah looks like. We've already seen a picture of Messiah in Revelation 1, but notice the, the colors and the stones. Okay. So I'm going to go to a Greek mindset Okay. real quick. The idea of a jasper stone is a clear crystal stone or a diamond. It's clear. So it says the one sitting on the throne is clear as crystal, representing the purity of the one sitting on the throne. He's, he's like a diamond. It's crystal clear. The idea of Sardis is a red color. So he looks crystal clear, but there's a red tint. There's a red hue about him. Obviously, when you see the, 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 the color of red, what do you think of? It's blood. Okay? So it's showing you the redemption element of Messiah. He's pure. He's God, because he's sitting on God's throne. And there's a redemption element to him. Now, that's a Greek mindset. The other thing I want to bring out, though, is the Hebrew mindset. Because now the church is removed, and we're talking about Israel from this point on. The jasper stone is the first stone in the breastplate of the high priest. The jasper stone represents the tribe of Reuben. The sardis stone is the last stone on the high priest's vestment. The sardis stone represents the last born of the twelve tribes of Israel, which is Benjamin. So you have the firstborn son, Reuben, represented, and the lastborn son of Israel, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, and Reuben means behold a son. Okay? Okay, what is that communicating to the Hebrew mind? When you see the twelve stones of Israel and the first and the last stones of the breastplate, 
beginning and the end, first and the last, but in relation to who? Who are we discussing? It's Jesus, yeah, but who is he in relation to when he's, when you see the stones of Israel upon him, or he looks like the first and the last stones of the twelve tribes? It is Messiah's relation to Israel. That's what that's communicating to you. Okay? It's, it's a double meaning. The meaning of, uh, of who's on there, Reuben means the son of the firstborn, right? Behold the son, something like that. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Right? Messiah is God's son. And notice that the two boys' names are corresponding to who Jesus is. Reuben and Benjamin mean son. They're all referring to a son. And what does the spirit of Antichrist say? That God has no son. And John said, that's the test to know when you're dealing with the spirit of Antichrist. What does Islam preach? That God has no son. It's right on the, on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right on there. Larry's right. If you go in Jerusalem, you can look it online. It says there that God has no son. That is that when John said that in 1 John, he says, when you see someone deny who Jesus is, that he's not the son of God or God doesn't have a son, that is the spirit of Antichrist. So the stones, see, is in a Greek mindset, you say, well, what's the color of the stone? It's clear and it's red. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. That's the Greek mindset. The Hebrew mindset says, wait, 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 that's Benjamin's stone and that's Reuben's stone. Which means when he, see, he takes the first and the last, it means it corresponds to all of Israel. I am now working with Israel now. I am back to work with my covenanted people. And Messiah is not only related to the church, his other vehicle is Israel. I am now about to put them back in place. Okay, so that's, that's part of it. And then we move, we move down and it says this. And there was a rainbow around about the throne like an emerald to look upon. Okay, so a rainbow a rainbow is encircling the throne around it, and it's emerald in color, a greenish color, but it's an, it, it's, it nonetheless is a rainbow. What does that remind you of, then? It reminds you of the, the judgment of the flood. It reminds you of the promise that came after that. What is getting ready to happen? A judgment on the level of the flood, but even greater called the Great Tribulation. So a judgment is getting ready to ensue, and Messiah is warning Israel, it is going to be like the flood, but worse. I will not, remember you made the promise, I will not destroy the, er, the world by uh, water, because I'm going to destroy it again by fire. So this new warning is reminding Israel, remember the days of Noah? What did Jesus say would be before the second coming? Like the days of Noah. Okay, so it's all interrelated and tied together. He's trying to tell Israel something is about to happen on the level of that cataclysmic and global. And the, the afterwards, the promise of the rainbow was God's promise not to destroy the world by a flood. But it was a token of God's faithfulness. And God would always give a token after his covenants. So in speaking to Israel, he is speaking their language now. When they see the rainbow, they're thinking, ah, yes, the token of the covenant. Yes, that's right. Yahweh is a promise-keeping God. 
And that's extremely important. Because he made a promise to Abraham. And what was the token of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. It's round. This picture of the rainbow, it's round. I'm going to fulfill my promise. You might be on this part of the circle, but eventually it's going to come back around and I'm going to fulfill it. You may not see it. You're on this part of the circle, so to speak, as it goes around, but it's coming closer to where I will fulfill it. So he's telling Israel, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to make good on my promises I made thousands and thousands of years because I'm a problem-seeking God. Now, this is important, as a, even us as the church. When Paul goes through his argumentation about how Gentiles and Jews are saved by faith, and he talks about our guarantee of salvation all the way up into Romans 8, what does he do? Does he go off into a different subject? No, he illustrates it by dealing with Israel in 9 through 11. Because the, the, the response to people hearing what Paul was saying is, wait a second, you say he's promised to give us glorified bodies, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, but yet how do we read Israel correctly then? Because it appears that God's word failed, or his promises failed, to Israel because look at them now. And what does Paul do? He explains it. And saying, and then by, by, by chapter 11, he says, eventually all Israel will be saved. He's going to make good on his promises. It was because of unbelief that's what happened. So, just because a people group like Israel, and this is what be, would be said by today, by replacement theology, they're done, they're finished, God is done with them, he's not going to fulfill any promises, the promises go to the church. That's bogus. The passage right here is telling you, I'm going to fulfill every promise I made to the nation of Israel. I can't be any clearer than that, what, is what Jesus is saying. If he can fulfill his promises to Israel, that means he can fulfill his promises to us. That's the lesson that Paul tries to teach all of us. Okay, and then it says, like an emerald, look around. Emerald is green, it refers to eternal life. When you see the color green. Isn't it funny the environmental movement stole that color? Isn't it funny the homosexual movement stole the rainbow? Have you noticed that they will take symbols that God uses to talk about eternal life or promises and pervert them? Have you noticed that? Why would they pick that symbol? Because it's a symbol of, associated with the rainbow's wrath. The flood was poured out. Every time I see a rainbow, it's not only because he made his promises, but he made good on the judgment he warned that, that, that group about. Okay, now we move on. And round about the throne were four and twenty thrones, or 20, uh, twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Ah, elders. Okay, we're not talking about angels. We're talking about human beings, okay? Human beings that are called elders. Arrayed in white garments. And on their heads, Stephanuses of gold. Now, now we're going to get a better picture of who these twenty-four elders are. They are humans. They're obviously redeemed. They're in heaven, and they're given white garments. Remember, white garments were given, when we looked at Revelation 19, we went a little forward about the merits of the Lamb, the white garments were given to the church to wear as part of their reward for the righteous acts of the church saints. So these guys are wearing the arraignment of reward, 
and on their heads are Stephanuses, not diadems. And we just talked about the judgment seat of Christ and five crowns being given to the church. So on these people's heads are the di are, sorry, the Stephanuses of reward. So what does that indicate? The judgment seat of Christ has already happened. The church has been rewarded. These are the white raiments. And this are, these are their crowns. Now, timing, timing. This is before the tribulation starts. Because he has not broken the seals yet. That, that's an indication that helps you understand that the rapture is not connected to the start of the tribulation. You could have years before this happens. Because Revelation 4 and 5 are pre-tribulational events that occur in heaven before the judgments start. Does that help you, help you understand the rapture a little bit better? Because this is, the, the judgment has already happened. The judgment seat of Christ has already happened to the church. We're, in, we're pictured in heaven sitting with Christ. Now, how do we know these are, these are the church? I mean, well, we talked about the Stephanuses, the white garments. The 24 represent, in 1 Chronicles 24, when David broke up the priesthood into 24 courses. And those 24 courses would be required to serve in the temple every week. And then these courses would go through. Okay, so it represented priesthood. Well, obviously this is not, this is not Israel, but it is another class of human beings that are considered elders and priests, which is the church. The church is called kings and priests in Revelation 1 and, and other passages talk about us being called priests of God and kings. So we not only have the Stephanuses, but we're all, they're in the 24 courses that David set up because they're a priestly group. What you'll see then later on in their song that they sing in Revelation, I think, 5, their song indicates us that we were redeemed from all the tribes, language, and tongues of the world. Well, that's not Israel, because Israel's Jewish. But when they sing this song that we were redeemed from all the parts of the world, they are telling you we are part of the church because the church is made up of the redeemed of all nations, tongues, languages, and people groups. So we definitely understand that the 24 elders is the church. Oh, uh, don't, don't get caught up on the number. The num It's all symbolic. It's telling you the church is right there in the, in the throne room of God. We're with God. It's not just that they're rotating 24 guys through. And that represents church. The number 24 represents the priestly class. And that priestly class tells you their location in proximity to the throne of God. So when we're in heaven with Christ before the tribulation, we're in His very presence. The only ones closer to Him are the four cherubim that guard the throne. So it tells you our proximity to Christ during the seven years tribulation. We're right there with Him in the throne room. No, that it's it's symbolic. Twenty four represents the priestly courses, and 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 it's telling that we're, we're the Stephanuses and the and the uh, twenty four represent king priests. These are king priest human beings, and the only human beings that are called king priests are those in the church. 
Okay, so any questions on that? Good question. Okay, keep following me. And it says this, um, 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 on page 165. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and voices and thunders, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit. That's actually a reference to Isaiah 11:2, talking about the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit. So there's a picture of the Holy Spirit right there in heaven. Then in 6 and 8, And before the throne, as it were, a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and around about the throne, the four living creatures, full of eyes, before and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature like a face of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, having each one of them six wings, are full of eyes, round about and within. And they have no rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. So these are the seraphim, also found in an Isaiah 6, that correspond with Isaiah 6. These are not the cherubim that carry the, the, the throne of God. Remember in Ezekiel, he described cherubim who escorted the throne of God. These are the guardians of the throne, or is a seraphim, okay? A little question, a little trivia for you. You notice that there's the, the four guardian seraphs look different. They have the appearance of a man, appearance of an eagle, appearance of a lion, and appearance of an ox. Does that ring any bell? Because the cherubim, believe it or not, the cherubim have all four faces. They have all four features of an eagle, lion, a man, or sometimes it's translated angel, the man, and an ox. So even the angels have these appearance of, of these four, that's why they're called four living creatures, but they have this appearance. These are the guardian cherubs and the guardian seraphs. They represent and they correspond to the Messiah. They represent the four Gospels. How so? Matthew, written to the Jews, verse, taught, trying to prove that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, lion. The lion aspect of the angels represent Matthew, or Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then you have the next Gospels, Mark, the servant Gospel symbolized by the ox-like angel that guards the throne, also symbolized by the cherubim that have the face of an ox. Why? Mark is proving that Jesus is the perfect servant. Luke. Luke is showing that Jesus is the perfect man to the Greeks. The perfect man is pictured in the angel that looks like a man, or the, you know, the cherubim that has the face of a man. And then the last one is John's gospel that proves that Jesus is the, that is the, uh, is deity, that he is God himself, symbolized by the eagle that comes from heaven. So you see, even the angels were created to represent the different aspects of the Son of God as the Messiah. Uh, it's right there in your passage. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3 talks about the same seraphs that he saw. And this is the best part. You ready for, to see where you're at in this whole drama? You're all the 24 elders. Watch what they do. Verse 9 through 11, we'll end on this. And when the living creatures shall give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, 
to him that lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, that's us, the church, what do we do? Shall fall down before him that sits on the throne and shall worship him that lives forever and ever and shall cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive the glory, the honor, and the power. For you did create all things, and because of your will, they were and were created. Notice the first phrase, and when. You see that phrase in that passage in verse 9, and when? The other translation in your New King James says, whenever. Whenever. You might have been taught that when you get your crowns, you're going to cast them before Christ, and then that's it. The term in the Greek means whenever. That means that this will constantly happen happen for you. That when you're in heaven and you see Jesus on the throne as John saw him, any time the four living creatures sing the triad, holy, 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 that is the church's cue to worship him and cast their crowns repeatedly before him. So this action is a repeat over and over and over again as we cast the crowns before Christ every time. And what are we saying by when casting our crowns, and then obviously the crowns come back on our head, but every time we worship him, we cast our crowns to him. What are we saying? That we understand that you rewarded for uh, rewarded us, but we still couldn't have done it without you because the gifts that you gave us came from you. We didn't have the ability to have these gifts. You gave us the gifts. Yes, we were responsible for them, but it all goes back to you. We, you. we give you credit for even the rewards that we have because we wouldn't have them had not you given them to us. Because the time, talent, and treasure that you've been given now come from Him. The health you have come from Him. The air that you breathe come from Him. The gifts the Holy Spirit gives you comes from Him. You're only responsible to use them, but you didn't create them in you. He did. And so the idea of casting the crowns is the recognition that I couldn't have done it without you anyway. And it's a recognition of His authority in our lives and, and the acknowledgement that He did it all. Any questions on that? That's what we will do during that time period. Every time that's sung, that song is sung, we get down and we worship Him. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.